One has to imagine that one is, that one has been canceled. One will be canceled. Um, that's the nature of mortality. But you, you have to, uh, you really have to accept that one has to accept one's imperfections and imperfections it's really kind of a the word doesn't really make sense because there is no perfection uh in terms of human behavior and in all of our lives we can uh find areas sometimes vast sometimes um less accessible of shame or uh disappointment or bad acts you know this is the nature of being human so i don't particularly um I, I you know i've i've been canceled already in my head you know and that's in, in, in that's how i that's that's why i write that's what the catharsis has always been for me is to write about the most vile imagining because as i said earlier it's my birthright as a human being to throw light on dark corners you know Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is novelist and screenwriter Bruce Wagner. He's the author of 12 novels and the creator of the television series Wild Palms, among other Hollywood credits. Bruce was a beloved, if not exactly commercial, literary figure for decades, especially in his home city of Los Angeles. His most recent novel, The Marvel Universe, was enthusiastically acquired by a small press until, he says, the publisher objected to certain problematic language, specifically the word fat, which a character uses to describe herself. This led to Bruce's decision to release the book into the public domain by making it available on his website for free. In this conversation, he talks about how this differs from self-publishing, how sensitivity readers are controlling standards and practices in so much of the culture now, and what this means for artists who are drawn to the more monstrous qualities of the human condition. Bruce Wagner, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you. So uh, this, the Marvel Universe, is officially your 12th novel. Is that right? Well, you know, when you, you get to this stage, uh, you're like an old movie star that can't remember what she's okay. been in. <laughs> so you know you've made it. You, you had major publishers for most of your books, but it seems significant that your first novel was self-published, at least initially, back in... 1991, I think. Yes. And, and here you are, 30, here I, 30 here years later, self-publishing yeah, that, again. That first book um, was really came about because I had been sending around short stories um, and was getting a strong reaction among friends, not anything um, professional. And I got a very strong reaction from that. And someone suggested um, that I published them in a, a desktop variant, and I had a friend named Cotty uh, Chubb that knew a little something about that, and we did that. And then my my real my career began uh, with Random House. It was all East Coast um, publishers, and this, um, as you said, it, it's come full circle now. And and I'm I don't know if this is called self publishing um, because I've released the book into the public domain. Right. Yeah. So. Tell us how you 
got here. Let's just get right into it. Right. I had um, for my I, my my last book the, the was the the end of a two book contract um, back east, and I had the notion that I wanted to publish in a California or Los Angeles centric based publishing house and um, looked around and got in touch with someone at Counterpoint Press. And um, he was uh, very familiar with my career, he said, and uh, would be happy to publish me. I sent them about 50 pages of a work in progress, which was the Marvel Universe. And um, I was I was thrilled. It, it came full circle to me, as we had just uh, mentioned. And when I turned the book in, um, I didn't hear from that publishing house for an inordinate amount of time, longer than than it, it should have been by my light. <laughs> so and, uh, two years, uh, three years rather than two years. That's the publishing metric. It was, um, you know, it was something like six weeks or two months, but it, that was. Um, Considering the intimate uh, relationship that I, uh, the circumstances were rather intimate. It was not a big house. It was um, a kind of uh, very well-regarded boutique house. I had yeah. met with him in person, uh, just on the cusp of of, uh, of COVID, and I finally he he reached out to me and he in a very roundabout way, just was discussing my working methods. I thought it was quite strange. And I said, just get to the heart of it. You know, it's obvious you didn't like the book. And he stammered a bit. And he began by saying that the language was problematic, <laughs> which was a rather chilling thing. He actually used that word because that word has become a parody of itself. So yeah. let's just yeah. end it. So this was like the, last year. Like this yes. was a year ago. Okay. Yes. So problem, I think, pro, I feel like problematic had already jumped the shark, but maybe just on the East coast. So <laughs> it may have. He, he, uh, un, uh, in earnest used the word problematic. Oh, in, in dead earnest. And uh, he, it, it was obvious to me that, that there were, uh, it was just the, the, the extreme tip of the iceberg that he, he probably didn't know where to begin. So he chose to begin with the use uh, my use of the word fat. I have in my book a uh, a an orphan, uh, a young girl. She's 19, whose family was slaughtered in front of her. Uh, she was hiding under a bed. Very wealthy. Um, the, the her parents were software uh, billionaires, and she uh, is a defense mechanism, a coping mechanism. She began to gain weight and she became obsessed with uh, the show My 600 Pound Life and wanted to, uh, ultimately her goal was to be a thousand pounds. And she it was kind of became a beloved social media figure because she was very candid. She was very funny. And in homage to the, the well-known social media figure, the fat Jew or the fat Jewish, she called herself the fat Joan. Her name was Joan Gamma. So the, the editor and publisher told me that that was not acceptable, that you could not even have a character call themselves uh, that, using that word. So I knew, of course, that, um, that the, 
the book was not going to be published. Because she's and, a major character. It's not like she just says fat in passing one time. That's she's a she's a major, major character and this is the main well, thing I about think, her. Well, I, I think the chilling thing about this is that fat in passing in uh, one time would have also been unacceptable. The idea that a character uh, cannot uh, call itself um, by a self-deprecating name is an enormous and problematic failure of, uh, <laughs> failure of imagination. So he then went on to flag various things. He basically said that the book uh, would have to be cut in half in terms of its content if it were to be publishable. Of course, if one did that, the book would, would not be publishable in any uh, shape or form. But uh, he said the, the first book, the book is divided into three sections. The first section was the most problematic. And um, I, I really ended the, the phone call by saying, what were you thinking when you exuberantly asked me, Bruce Wagner, whose work you, you, you said that you knew and extolled, to, to deliver a manuscript? I think in some hallucinatory way, he thought suddenly I would be a New Yorker writer. I, I just, I couldn't, it was puzzling. And then I came to the conclusion after speaking with a group of friends that he had had sensitivity readers. A friend of mine uh, knows an editor that has three, one for body issues, one for gender issues. Um, and they specialize one, now, the sensitivity yeah, oh, readers. Uh, well, I mean, I know it, they it, exist, but I didn't realize there were um, well, I, there were specialty I you, fields. You you cover your your uh, thin or fat ass with with the sensitivity readers, and I think that he was told that not only would he be pilloried um, because of the content of the book, but it would possibly endanger the entire house, which was a kind of jewel box. I, I really need to add that I owe him a debt, and I'm not saying that uh, with any kind of, um, in a sardonic way at all, because had he not rejected the book, I would not have um, been launched on the path that, that I, I found myself on. The road narrows, and uh, we, we like to think that the road widens. Uh, the, the road narrows is not a pejorative. It the the one's options and opportunities narrow until if you're lucky they narrow to the right thing the just thing the the thing that uh, allows one to sleep at night and in my case it was not self-publishing in other words doing something the model where you release a book and and your your readers or subscribers can buy the book for $3.99 after you consult with someone who knows about this shit, or $2.99 or $1.99. The idea that I would completely give up ownership of this book suddenly became the apt reflexive response to censorship, which uh, was the first time I had been exposed to that in my entire career. And as I've said before, uh, all of my books would be thrown into the furnace if they were scrutinized by sensitivity readers or uh, cultural uh, mores. Or, or happened upon by a lot of people on Twitter, now that <laughs> I think of it. <laughs> well, it's, it's fairly easy now to be uh, uh, crucified and eviscerated um, on Twitter. Uh, regardless, uh, in the book, 
um, that I've written, Marvel Universe, there's a, a kind of magical realism section where a woman, Fat Joan, in fact, is transformed into a kind of mystical bird. And paparazzi with drones are taking photos of her from far above, and they release the photos. And people on Twitter are up in arms because they feel she's wearing a Native American headdress, when in fact that is her real plumage. So it's fairly easy uh, regardless. You know, I think Armin Hammer's going through that now, um, being accused of, uh, uh, of a sexual cannibal. I mean, it's just astonishing, you know. So uh, in that regard, um, I, I, as, a, as a response, a kind of savage response, primal response to being censored, um, I said to myself, what am I trying to protect by uh, giving this away? So at this time, oddly uh, and, and perfectly, this is the only book I have ever written that will never go out of print. Okay, that's okay. That good, good point. Uh, I want to, I want to talk about these censorship issues, obviously, as is this show's want. But before we get into that, um, I want to hear more about the about the novel, so people can know what it's about. Um, it, you know, it, it read to me. It's like a sort of acid trippy Robert Altman film with sort of with sort of terrifying little Instagram uh, cameos. Um, it's a novel of interconnected characters. There's there's Joan, uh, who's the you know heiress to this fortune who becomes a sort of fat body. It's, she's not, it's not, she's not really a body positivity uh, influencer, although she has that uh, audience, I suppose. Um, yeah. And then there's Allie, who's a, a sort of one-time teenage television star who somehow has ALS mm -hmm. and is withering away. Can you describe, um, first of all, their relationship, but also some of the other characters? Sure. Um, you know, this, this book um, really harkened back to earlier books that I'd written, like I'm Losing You and Still Holding. My books are really frequently ensemble pieces in which, uh, as one reads, one uh, takes note of the interconnectivity of the characters. In other words, they're not discrete novellas or, or uh, something like a book of short stories. Everyone uh, is connected to one another, uh, much like things turn out in, in, uh, in real life, in real time. And uh, Ali and, and Joan... Uh, Joan is someone that who uh, gets crushes on uh, young women, and uh, I, I don't even want to ask my publisher what he thought about Joan having crushes and sexual fantasies on Millie Bobby Brown and uh, Billie Eilish, and you know. It, well, that's just... okay because there's a power. That's a punching up on her part, yeah. right? There's a yeah, power. Yeah, yeah. She she lacks the power because she's not them. So. Yes. So, I, you know, Joan and Allie and then Bud Wiggins, who's an older incarnation of the character that I wrote about, uh, a failed screenwriter in, in my very first effort, Force Majeure. Uh, Wiggins is now um, in his 60s and has uh, uh, a severe addiction problem, not just to opiates, but to uh, gambling. He plays scratchers at liquor stores in 7-Eleven. And it's uh, how those characters 
come together uh, in, into some kind of transcendent state. Uh, the, the other characters in my book, I, I had wanted to address the idea of can't being canceled. So I have uh, a character who is very successful showrunner, an Emmy Award winning uh, writer and director for television, who's um, just been lauded because he's he, he wrote a uh, a Netflix show about um, a serial killer, and he uh, has been canceled because some women have come forward and uh, uh, to the Hollywood Reporter and said that he was inappropriate with them. He groped them, et cetera. These stretch back mm -hmm. over the last 28 years. The irony there that I wanted to present is that he he's absolutely certain that he not only doesn't know most of these women, but that what they are saying could not be true. But his dark secret is that he raped his assistant when he was in his 30s. Uh, he had a married assistant. Uh, he began an affair with her and with with what I comfortably call a rape. And that relationship uh, became uh, it extended beyond that. Um, she was terrified that she would lose her job and she uh, when she has a child she does not know whether it's her boss's child or if it's her husband's child and she experiences um, postpartum depression and and a general panic and takes her own life at that time he undergoes a complete transformation where he has such remorse and such guilt for his act, which is, remains a complete secret, that he uh, decides that he will will treat women in a way that is uh, with complete dignity. And he's doing that for selfish reasons, but that is who he becomes. He becomes the go-to guy for equal wages for women in the business, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so I wanted to present a dichotomy. Um, the, the one thing I do in all of my work is there is a spiritual aspect to my work. I know that that word, uh, like problematic, is, uh, has become a cliche. But I feel that um, I have to present the other side of uh, human beings and extremists, the other side of darkness. I have to, to have enormous light. And that light is often comes from a sacred place. So this um, was something else in this entire experience that uh, rather astonished me that that the publisher of this book was was unable to see uh, the transcendent aspect of of what I was attempting to do. Now, that could mean that I completely failed at it, but that is what I do for each of my books. And I write constantly about outsiders. Uh, one, uh, one does not have to, to be an externally uh, an outsider. One does not need to be um, challenged in a number of ways in order to channel that. And th that has been my obsession. So this, this idea that I was dissing or degrading outsiders also, to me, was uh, somehow pornographic. Especially because, I mean, it's not it's 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 not realism all the way through. I mean, it's there's a magical realist element to it. So it's almost, I, I guess. Well, I guess we know that none of us are off the hook. 
the genre alone doesn't let you off the hook because you've got all these like YA and fantasy fiction writers who are being canceled for these things too. Mm. So I guess you could give a magical creature problematic description and and still uh, oh. get strung up for it. So yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really known, Megan, for intense realism. I, in fact, um, on the you know, surface I, though, Bruce, I mean, I'm, I love your work, but you know, it is, there is, a, there is a, you know, a, a moment at which it kind of becomes transcendent in a surprising way. Well, in, you know, Cronen, David Cronenberg, who, who did directed maps to the stars, this movie that I wrote a few years ago, we, we both used to be constantly uh, challenged as to what we were doing was satirical. And early in my career, I balked at being um, called a satirist because I was more sensitive than I am now. But I can really only think of one, one uh, episode in any of my 12 books that was uh, what one would call satirical. It was uh, a character was hallucinating because he got very ill when he was in Mexico. And he, he was, uh, this was Bud Wiggins, the failed screenwriter. And he began to imagine that ICM had been taken over like stadiums used to be taken over in South America and that uh, people were being rounded up and tortured in the basement of ICM, the agency. <laughs> that is the singular satirical thing I've ever written. I don't really feel that anything that I write about is an exaggeration. And no. in, in Marvel Universe, I, I do uh, uh, agree. There is a one section that has an, uh, an element of magical realism. But apart from that, I'm scrupulously um, adherent to reality or the, let's say, consensus reality, because that's, I think, um, how uh, that's what leads to transcendence. In other words, if, if we can see the world splayed out or played out uh, in, in the way that we do perceive it in daily life, then it, it makes the impact of, of an unusual resolution uh, more powerful. Can you read a short excerpt from this novel? Yes. I'll say that um, this section, since we've been talking about uh, Joan Gamma, a.k.a. Fat Joan Gamma, um, is a little bit about uh, her, her journey. She, as I had said earlier, she, there is a reason behind her desire to become a thousand pounds or more. And uh, it, it, it stems from her being hiding uh, under a bed during the murder of her, of her family. So this is that section. In 2015, right after her family was slaughtered in the house in Holmby Hills, Joan started gaining. She really stepped up her game in the last two years when she turned 16, inhaling 8,000 calories a day and hardly moving from her bed. She remembered the random day she locked in on the TV show My 600-Pound Life, astonished by the longing it aroused. She fell in love with the marooned draperies of flesh and the angsty, lacrimose, baby-faced divas as they perched daintily, coyly, sadly, codependently, apologetically 
upon the smear-stained, sheetless lily pads of mattresses thrown haphazardly into living rooms, bedrooms, U-Haul vans. Mattresses were the indispensable accoutrement of the colossal-sized life. Nearly 400 pounds herself now, Joan was transfixed by the slim, careful enablers, usually family members, sometimes their own children, as they administered sponge baths, patiently exploring the blurry, viewer-censored folds guarding undiscovered decubiti and skin-stamped filth. One boy, always boys and girls to Joan, no matter their age, was almost half a ton. His legs, as if drawn from an illustrated fairy tale book, had grown fungus lichen. He looked like a pasty, demolished centaur and was breathtakingly beautiful to her. She religiously aspired to such transformations. Joan hadn't weighed herself in over a year, not since her birthday in December. She and Billie Eilish both turned 18 on the 18th. When 1.7 billion of the Gamma Family Trust irrevocably became hers, now she felt the threshold of 500 pounds coming, a quarter ton, like a rolling orgasm. Floating above a high hill on her magic carpet mattress, catching labored breath, she finally caught sight of the distant, welcoming kitchen lights and chimney smoke of home. She knew she would arrive by summer. Thank you. So, Bruce, if if it had not been a female character who was um, describing herself as fat, do you think the publisher's response would have been any different? No, I don't. I honestly don't. Um, I, I feel that that there, you know, the pendulum swings. I'm not particularly disturbed or or outraged by these developments. There's so much. Uh, more in the world um, to be outraged uh, and puzzled about. But I feel that that we are now, the pendulum is swinging uh, one way and it will come back because that's the nature of, of this life. I think that the sensitivities are, are almost, you can't trace, uh, they seem obvious, but then we, we are arriving at a point where they, there's no sense to them. There's no rationale. Uh, so you, you can't um, say, well, wait one moment. Don't you see that? Uh, dot, dot, dot. Uh, we're, far, we're far past that. So the, the, the objections that, that the, I'll tell you one other peculiar thing that the publisher, uh, I, I was talking about uh, this character um, who was a showrunner who had raped uh, his assistant and then uh, atoned for his sins after uh, her suicide. He said to me, don't you, uh, he said, you, you can't call that a rape. And I said, well, well, why? Because there's a very explicit scene where he is completely playing on her vulnerabilities. She comes to his hotel room where uh, he said that he wanted to be working there that day because he'd had an argument with his wife. And I wouldn't call it a seduction. It's much closer to, uh, a, a, uh, it is a violation. And I felt comfortable using the word rape. And that began 
this relationship that was um, uh, a, 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 a power drunk relationship um, fueled on licentiousness and, and his, own, um, his own power. Um, the publisher said to me, you can't call it a rape because they had a relationship for a year or so, a sexual relationship <laughs> after that. Wait a second. Wait, but, all the, the yeah, everything's yes. getting turned around now. Okay. Yes. It's like choose, so, choose a lane guy. Yeah. 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 So the, choose a lane, but in his, in his head, uh, I think this is, this speaks to the notion of what I was saying. There's no rationale anymore. He somehow, um, uh, felt that this was a politically correct comment. Uh, it, it, none of it makes sense. It's a, it's a kind of uh, a clown show. And I, I said to him, I said, well, you know, I, I think that um, the women of, of um, Me Too uh, uh, would, would have a strong argument against that. And I, I even brought uh, up to him various examples that are well known. Uh, you know, in the press, Asia Argento, et cetera, of, of people that had relationships with the men that had abused them. So this, this, uh, none of it makes sense, Megan, is what I'm saying. So you, you really, um, you have to, to stop fighting. It's like the Chinese finger puzzle. The more you, your fingers struggle to get out, the more constricted, uh, things become. So you said that this is the first time you've encountered this kind of, um, well, we'll just call it censorship. I mean, it certainly was, you were, somebody was not going to publish something that you wrote. I can't, I guess none of us are really censored because we're still talking, but, you know, unless I've missed something, you've been pretty quiet about things like the issue of culture, cancel culture and the overall state of morality policing. I don't see you on social media banging on about it the way that, you know, me and others in journalism, uh, you know, there's a bunch of us who've been on about it for a while. Is it an area of concern that you've been observing from a distance? Um, or did you, did you really just stumble upon it uh, with this latest misadventure? No, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, political in that sense. There's all kinds of different people. You have... Um, you have Buddhists that are politically active, etc. Everyone has a different um, identity. Mine is purely as a writer of fiction. I address all of these things in the mirrors that are my books. I address the idea of cancellation uh, in my in my latest book, uh, and I don't I don't take a stance. Um, you know, I I I just. Um, the moment I, this is me personally, take a stance, then I become a polemicist um, or an essayist, uh, which is not something I choose to do at this time because it's not my nature. Um, my nature is to reflect or explore uh, the human experience. I cannot tell you how immersed I become in current affairs with the writing of my books, I mean, with uh, Dead Stars and Marvel Universe, I had to um, become an Instagram person, an observer. I didn't have an Instagram account, but I was completely uh, soaked in in contemporary culture. So I'm very much uh, uh, of it, 
uh, but but not a part of it. You know the the idea uh, that I suppose the, the if I was to be an an essayist and and I'm hoping that these these thoughts and reflections are are in my work, but the the idea uh, what's happened now is there's a meagerness of spirit, you know that the the internet reflects so much that is exalted uh, in in human beings, but it, it for the most part is uh, is reflects the worst. And as a, a human being, it's my birthright to be able to channel those uh, extreme poles and everything in between as uh, as a writer of fiction. And to deny me that uh, is is a, a meagerness of spirit. Um, so I, I that is what I do. In other words, if you're suddenly, I remember in one of my books, it was the empty chair. It was a little boy whose mother was um, a kind of um, weekend warrior Buddhist uh, who became consumed with with Buddhist literature, and she would give him lessons, homeschool him on impermanence, and he, the little boy, hanged himself, and it was uh, implied that it was a lark that he he really believed everything his mother said and that uh, this was a, a kind of a goof. It was a prank that he would emerge from uh, either in his own body or someone else's. He was not psychotic. And that was drawn from reality. I had read an article about a little boy who hanged himself in the Bay Area, not for that reason. But suddenly to have Buddhists up in arms um, or readers of Tricycle, the Buddhist magazine, up in arms, or to have to put a trigger warning on that novel saying that this discusses suicide if one knows anyone that is in danger of that, or if one self uh, has experienced those thoughts, here's the phone number to You're call. You're going to put an 800 number in your yeah. the front uh, matter so, of your book. So suddenly that becomes an alternate uh, fictional work. It's no longer just my work. It's, it becomes something else, like, like some kind of monstrous coral reef. It's growing things. So I, I really feel that there is a, a meagerness of spirit that people are, are, have become almost terrified that the, the discussion of one's possibilities, not the, just the best possibilities, but the worst possibilities is anathema and taboo. That to me is a, a failure of spirit. Well, and what's so frustrating to me is that I feel like most people, most professional writers, most people with any sort of sophistication, aesthetically, intellectually, know that. They know, they know that, you know, what what you're describing is adult literary fiction, you know, fiction that does not um, set out to perform some kind of moral act or be a force of social good. That's not, that's not what art is there to do, or at least like in my experience, that's, that's not why I started consuming art or reading books or trying to write them, you know? So like, do you think that how much of this is like, the, the emperor has no clothes, like like every sort of the industry, the business, the cult, cultural institutions are just sort of going along with 
this new protocol that uh, only potentially a very small portion of the audience actually embraces? Mm-hmm. What do you yeah. think? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I really like, you know, I, I fret over this and go back and well, forth in my I, mind I, all the time. Part of me thinks that um, that we're in the midst of a seizure. You know, it, there's uh, it, it's so it, it, it's very difficult when one is in the midst of a seizure or a hurricane um, to assess the damage. You know, you, 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 we can't just now. Uh, it, it, I don't know about you, but the idea, when I listen now to three-minute pop songs, it seems like I'm listening to um, obscure bluegrass. It's like it feels out, out uh, passe. There's something antiquated, something quaint about the form, even for me, uh, when I listen to you know, rock groups, you know, from the, from the 60s, uh, you know, even some of rap is starting to sound that way. Uh, so novels themselves, not only their content, but the, the form of them, a hardcover, you know, um, or, or, you know, I know many people that, that the idea of being opposed to reading books on Kindle or the iPad is becoming so far much less the antipathy toward it than it used to be. You know, you used to be able to encounter so many people. No, 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 I don't do that. And now those people, I think many of them quietly do do that. And so it's not that I have nostalgia for books. You know, I, I interestingly enough, I had, I think I had 7,000 books that I wound up uh, selling to a needy bookstore last year. Um, it was it was too much for me to have the necklace of these books around my neck. Uh, so I, I just, I'm not sure. Uh, I So much is be, becoming antiquated now. Uh, we're in this strange evolutionary moment and we don't know what's coming, you know. Uh, so I, I can't really say uh, much about it because we have we can't assess the damage we don't know how many structures are down we don't know if it's a good if it's a good thing part of this kind of of destruction weirdly uh uh feels good to me in a sense because it sweeps away the complacency and um it makes room for something new either a stronger version uh of what we so loved uh or a different version of it so i don't i don't have fear about it but i do feel for even writers you know who are constantly apologizing you know when they're attacked and some of them are are really uh lovely delicate fiction writers sending out the the i'll be better i'll do better oh, yeah, it's, the, the, it's the hostage video oh yeah and i wonder like do they again do they mean it? It just apologizing. But when you get in that situation, the worst thing you can do is apologize. I mean, it's the rope you hang yourself with. And it just, it's remarkable to me that people keep doing it. Uh, yeah, so, we don't, we, you know, we often don't know how uh, we will react. Um, we don't know the financial predicament of many of these people. Um, we don't know how bravery encourages is strengthened or weakened uh it's it's shameful in many ways you know um but shit 
it's a privilege to not apologize, I suppose. Well, yeah, you've been you've been hit uh, with your books for sure. No. Well, uh, y- yes and no, but uh, I mean, I this is why I mean, I'm I really have been interested in talking to you because you know your books, you know, to me like your novels like that's to, when I, that's like how you write like i was a young young writer and and it would be really exciting when there was a new bruce wagner novel and we would read it and it's like oh no this is like this is how an interesting writer writes and mm. reading this kind of this kind of rhetorical style this kind of just this kind of lack of apology putting it out there it's what you're doing is trusting your reader to understand what you're up to you know, and it requires a great deal of, of faith in your audience, which I always thought, well, of course, like, you know, my audience is not the whole world. I'm not, you know, I, if, in case you haven't noticed, I'm not on the bestseller list. So, you know, it's like, okay, well, the, 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 the gift of that is that, you know, there's, there, there are people who are going to get what you're doing and, and you're writing for them. And it just seems to me like, we have lost faith in our own audiences and certainly the um, like the institutional gatekeepers, the publishers, the film festival programmers, the museum curators, whoever it is. Like, I think, you know, those people, at least if they're of a certain generation, they most certainly know deep down what they care about, what their values are culturally. But for some reason um, they have decided to, to pander to this kind of, unsophisticated authoritarianism. Well, you know, the, I, I have no illusion. I mean, my readership is, is uh, in the scheme of things, it does not exist. You know, the, <laughs> I, I, no, really, I, I don't, I, I don't believe, you know, there's this, um, I, I think that uh, any writer worth his salt writes for himself. He does not write for his audience. Uh, of course, that's different when it comes to people that are involved in the machinery of, of best-selling books that come out once a year or twice a year. That is different, of course. You don't want to deviate from the brand. And uh, those are people that their legacy will continue after death because there will be um, people that continue to, with, with the permission of the estate, continue to write books involving those characters that were originally created by the now-deceased um, you know, best-selling avatar. You know what I mean. So, yeah. but for the most part, uh, you know, you one writes for oneself. You know, I mean, the writers that I know, um, you know, Deborah Eisenberg. Uh, you, you know, I, I know mm-hmm. many of them. They, you wouldn't say that Deborah writes her books for her audience. You know, Deborah has an audience because <laughs> she writes in, in the way that she writes. So I don't, uh, right. this was part of my, my thought, you know, because initially when I told friends that I was going to release my book uh, onto the internet, this was, be, be, uh, and, and they didn't quite grasp what I meant when I said into the public domain, which was the, the taking it one step further. Um, but they, many of them were appalled and it took them a moment to come around because we've been so indoctrinated that one, you know, some friends said to me, you know, better to be published by a small press, you know, to, after you were rejected by this publisher in L.A., to find a small press and publish with them. Better to be rejected by those people and published by a small press than it would be 
to put something onto the internet. In other words, better to be published by a small press and not read than to uh, distribute something on the internet. Now, the fact that it's on the internet and public domain does not mean at all that it's going to be read. But it's off my my back, Megan. It's in other words, if I had stayed with this guy, even if they loved the book, the book was not scheduled to be published until October of this year, 2021. And I would be now uh, all all of the you know it's like almost a, you, you you're stillborn. You know you you have a a stillborn child, or you're forced to carry a dead child as a woman. In your belly because it's not it's unsafe to to get the baby out at this time you know i've written about that before as well yeah so you know that to me was uh uh the most important thing was that instead of waiting a year and then god knows the the, the publisher is fired or retires and the new people come along and say no 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 and yes. it's all it's all genuinely an abortion that I suddenly had a book out three months after uh, this happened. There, there are two published versions of my book. One sprung up on the internet on Amazon, um, a company that specializes in on-demand printing of uh, books that are in the public domain. So you could get a bound, fairly decent looking book. And then uh, there was one by a new press in LA called Felix Farmer that did a uh, a limited 500 uh, copy run, one one time only, not going to be reprinted. Uh, that benefits Book Soup, where I first yeah. published Force Majeure. This is Sa this is Sam Wasson's project. Sam Wasson, yes. yes. Uh, so I mean, I instead of waiting a year, that would still have been a gray area. Suddenly, my book was out, and I had two versions of it available. And there's more plans, from what I hear. There's uh, I'm hearing from. Um, friends of mine in other parts of the country that people are planning on publishing the book. So, Jesus, you know what I mean, Megan? So, actually, this is interesting. So, Marvel Universe it exists in the public domain, and I should stand corrected because at the top here, I I said self-published. That that's a different thing. Can you just explain to me what is the difference between self-publishing and what you've done here, public domain? Well, the difference is that you you when you self-publish, you retain your copyrights. In other words. There couldn't be somebody publishing, uh, you know, I self-publish like I did my, my very first book, Force Majeure. There could not be a company that would suddenly say, oh, we want to publish this too because I have the copyright. There could not be a movie or television show made of the contents of Force Majeure, as miraculous as that might sound, because I own the content. They would have to, the copyright, they would have to buy those rights from me. The difference be, between that and what I've done is the book now is completely, uh, I do not, it's disowned by me in terms of the copyright. Anyone can, can adapt the book, anyone can publish the book without my permission. Uh, so uh, it's even with Felix Farmer, um, they, they asked me if I wanted to participate in the design, etc. I said, you guys roll with it. And they made this gorgeous book. I don't profit in any way from those books that are being sold either on the internet, uh, you know, the on-demand books or from the, the copies that are being sold out of book soup now, uh, or, or in the future. I, I have cut all my ties to financial remuneration when it comes to this new book. <laughs> 
But okay, but that that means you also can't you can't option it. You you're not going to make all these revenue streams are uh, null and void. So what does that feel like? Like it, it's liberating, but like, are you are you broke? I mean, I know you've got other irons in the fire, but do you have ever any motivation to write another book? Here's the thing, Megan, and you may uh, you may know about this as well, although you may not. Nobody makes any money at my level uh, of quote literary fiction anyway. I mean, there there was a short time in the go go years when they were throwing money at you, but the I, I you know the idea of how many books do writers sell you know it's such a, a dirty little but secret. you can't option it if you can't option it you really can't make any money you know the if, if, if you're it's you know mid-list literary author your hope is that you'll get some yeah, movie or tv I, option. you know it, for me megan i make uh, my my real money writing for movies and television and the the idea uh you know i i people may may think this is disingenuous but i think even if I was broke, I would have done this because I, I would not if this the idea of, of movies being made adaptations of my work. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I've never uh, Maps to the Stars was an original work for for movies. Um, Wild Palms was a cartoon for Details magazine that was not in, in book form. I think subsequently it was published in oh, book form. I thought these were I, all adaptations of your no, novels. No, 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 okay. no. So I use, I recycle characters. I use things from my, my own work, oh, okay. characters that I was really attached to. But we're not talking about John Grisham here, you know? Well, no, of course so, not. No, don't, yeah, don't get me wrong. We're not, no, no, we're not even talking about um, whomever. You, you could pick any any author that's had their their... Uh, their books successfully adapted to screen, even if it was just one book. But that that's not that wasn't my concern. I thought, what am I protecting? Because at my age, it would be my friends that were appalled at this thought, well, you, you have to think of your career. There, there seemed to be something unseemly about me doing that, uh, uh, like I had failed or I was desperate. And and they they came around and came to to see the the clarity and the significance of what I was doing. So for me, in at this time and that time, 2020, to let my book join the stream of, of floating sacred idols and excrement in the river of humanity was phenomenally uh, exciting for me. Um, I wasn't going to ask this question because it's sort of uncouth, but I, I guess I... I just will. Like, did you try to get the book published by Simon and Schuster or Random House? I mean, I'm asking because it's so good. It just so the quality is so extraordinary. No, it's, not, it's like it's like I, I did. You, I mean, I would think that you would find un- somebody dying to publish it. No, it's not uncouth at all. No, I I think that um, you know, uh, your your the the my coin, you know, uh, uh, was not significant anymore. In other words, my, my books don't, you know, if my books had sold tens of thousands of copies, um, then I would have been in the running somehow. The idea that I, I went with a small publisher because I'm, I don't think uh, the, the bigger publishers were lining up to say, we want Bruce Wagner's 
next book. I but I mean, did your agent try? Sorry, I, this is not where I usually go with this, but I, I just it's find fine. it remarkable no, that here's, like, here's, somebody here's, from Simon & Schuster would not like be dying to publish this even no, for like, no. you know, Here, a couple dollars. I had a very loyal editor and publisher named David Rosenthal. And for, for basically my entire career, David started his own imprint called Blue Rider. And, yes. Oh, uh, yes. and Blue, went out of business, yes, right? Blue Rider went out of business. And then I had one final book in my contract that was published by the, the house that took over Blue Rider. And then I was exhausted in a sense. I felt that I'd gone as far as I could uh, in terms of uh, diminishing returns on the East Coast. That's why I was so excited about going with a small press that didn't have the the, the wow factor, which is madness, of Random House or, you know, it's, it's all one company now, isn't it? Bertelsmann, yep. Random House. Yep. I mean, it's all like one giant company now. Yep. So I thought, oh, this is marvelous. These are people that, that, um, that uh, really understand my work. And I'm, I live in Lincoln Heights in L.A. I'm a Los Angeles writer to my teeth. And that's exciting to me. And they've so, done lovely books, by the yes, way. Yes. Counterpoint, they're an excellent press. I have no beef. I really don't have a beef with Counterpoint. And I said it earlier, and I'm, I'm not being absurd here. I do owe them a debt um, because I wouldn't be where I was. But when that happened and they said no, it was obvious to me that I did not want to go through that long and painful process of submitting this book to publishers. You know, that takes uh, anywhere from from three months minimum to a year. And then you get, uh, you get the no's that trickle back and you have wasted uh, a year. And so the, the, the first thing that came to mind, Megan, was that I would publish this myself. And wow. it, the, my learning curve was very, very, it was very fast. I started talking to people and I started talking to book designers, and they said, well, most of the books now are published in China or Iceland. And I started looking at costs, and I, I said, I threw my hands up. I said, what am I doing? I'm back in book world. I'm back, like, arguing, in a sense, the way I used to with publishers about book covers, font, layout, etc., <laughs> except I'm bearing the cost. So that's, right. when, that's when, as I said earlier, the road narrows. I got, uh, suddenly, it was a revelation to me. I'm going to release this book. I'm not going to sell it. I'm going to release it onto my, uh, I'm going to create a website because I didn't have one. And I did. And you go right to it. It says read. And you just press read. I don't sell books on the website. Nothing. It only really exists. Uh, to to so people can go on there and read and I had to you know I I I sent um, it to Francine Prose and she said you know I I I can't print this out I'm in the country and I can't read it so I I printed it out and sent it to her you <laughs> I'm know, glad so she doesn't read on the computer yes yeah or on the yeah phone. I don't blame yeah. her uh, no. so I did that with um, with Danny Shapiro as well. So there were friends uh, and and people that I respect as writers that I I did do that in a couple of cases, but I really got over the notion that, oh God, what have I done? Um, There's people that can't even read it. The bottom line is there's people that will be holding a hard copy of my book and not not get past page one. 
So this idea of of ownership and and career and uh, you know legacy it, it's it's just an illusion. Have you gotten uh, pushback? Have you gotten people complaining about uh, Fat Joan or? any of the other uh, problematic aspects of the book, or have you mostly been able to stay away from that? I have not as yet. One thing that it's kind of like when I first started out, because of this website, I get direct uh, responses from readers because I have an email address on the website. And I've heard nothing of that yet, um, but that that shit is always just um, there, you know, so I... Funny thing too, because if you do if these sort of boutique projects, you 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 attract the audience that likes you anyway. Like that's what I've sort of found about this podcast. I keep you know recently I was like, wow, this podcast is going so well. Nobody ever complains about it. Nobody ever tells me it sucks. And then it's like, well, no, actually, because those people aren't even bothering to listen to it. So yeah. Yeah, in yeah, a way, yeah. that's nice, but it's also it's kind of a false false sense of. Uh, satisfaction but i mean are you like i mean i it's funny because my last book is considered so controversial and it's actually the most careful book i've ever written like it's so it's you know just really just tries to split the difference all the time and i find like i, I think if if people really wanted to they could go dig back through any number of my books and absolutely uh annihilate me uh, annihilate me i mean i can think of a few in particular that i i kind of like i i live in fear of people like digging up certain passages but also like there's a there's a thrill to it and i would that's definitely the case in your in your uh oeuvre so uh do you ever like does it keep you up at night or do you do you thrill to the idea of being canceled uh you know canceled for past past sins you know i had i had a um a friend, I've had a number of people say this to me, and they're usually enlightened people, um, that we're, you know, we're already dead. The worst has already happened um, because we are already dead. This this life is so short, and the the, the woes and the struggles that, that we are given are so ephemeral, uh, so impermanent as that... Um, Poor young boy learned uh, his lesson in, in in a way that was that was not effective, but that one has to imagine that one is one has been canceled. One will be canceled. Um, that's the nature of mortality. But you you have to uh, you really have to accept that one has to accept one's imperfections. And imperfections, it's really kind of a, the word doesn't really make sense because there is no perfection uh, in terms of human behavior. And in all of our lives, we can uh, find areas, sometimes vast, sometimes um, less accessible, of shame or uh, disappointment or bad acts. You know, this is the nature of being human. So I don't particularly, um, I, I, you know, I've, I've been canceled already in my head, you know, and that's, in, 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 that's how I, that's, that's why I write. That's what the catharsis has always been for me is to write about the most vile imaginings, because as I said earlier, it's my birthright as a human being to throw light on dark corners. You know, this is what I do. 
and uh, why I do it, I don't know, Megan. What is the, the, the compulsion to write about the worst of humanity? Uh, and, and yet the, it's, it's off, offset by writing about the, 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 the real beauty and magnificence of being human. And, and then what's at the end? Uh, you know, what are we slouching toward? You know what I mean? And um, it is Bethlehem to me. I want to shift for a minute and talk about Hollywood and your your film and television writing career. You know, I've noticed a strange contradiction when it comes to Hollywood's relationship to these new culture wars. You know, on one hand, with book publishing seizing up and becoming so self-censorious, cable television is really one of the few places where you can find nuanced genuinely complicated storytelling and characters and so on. So, uh, on, you know, there's that. But then on the other hand, the woke factor in Hollywood is pretty stifling. I mean, you hear horror stories about what goes on in writer's rooms. Walter Mosley, famously now with the show he was working on when he got in trouble for saying the N-word, mm-hmm. he is he is Black. How do you reconcile this dichotomy? How is it that such a tortured industry is still able to put out pretty good content consistently well um you know it, it commerce it rules you know i think um the profit margin rules regardless of what they've said about jk rowling i think she will still flourish um i think it gets problematic uh not always but it gets problematic at the level where um something is questionably profitable, uh, then I think the knives come out in full force. That's not to say that um, that, that some uh, tentpole film that makes billions of dollars could not be disrupted, but they would then uh, make a course correction fairly quickly and disrupted in terms of something that you mentioned about Walter Mosley, something happening like in, in that regard. Um, it would be disruptive, but they would make their amends, we'll do better and all of that because uh, the dollar would rule in, in that case. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I wrote a film that we were going to shoot recently in Los Angeles, but with COVID, it seemed problematic. That film is, I think, going to start shooting in about a month in Hong Kong. Mike Figgis is directing it. It's an adaptation, strangely, that I said none of my work is ever adapted, of uh, a book that I wrote years ago called I Met Someone. Um, so we're, we're not experiencing, uh, I'm not experiencing that kind of um, woke, uh, um, those kind of woke corrections with that, but there's different uh, things that we are experiencing because it's shooting in Hong Kong. So I, I don't know, you know, I'm just not a, I've never been a part of, of that giant machine. I've never been in a, a writer's room in terms of uh, working on television, except with Tracy Ullman, and that was a whole different deal. So um, I'm just not, you know, I think you're correct that that's, the marvelous stuff is being done now, uh, as everyone knows, on, on cable. In terms of film, it's almost what I was saying earlier that, there's something quaint now about movies. I have director friends that are basically saying it's done. Theaters are done. We're finished. Now, whether or not that's just the pendulum speaking, we don't know. As I said, the hurricane now uh, of so many things 
uh, is occurring and we can't assess the damage. But there now is a quaintness, uh, whereas, you know, you, you, you're probably um, old enough to remember a time when, uh, although you, I don't know if you were working in Hollywood in any way, where absolute death was, was writing um, episodes that were not standalone. In other words, you had to write, if you were going to write a sitcom or a drama, it had to be standalone. It had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It could not oh, each, bleed. Oh, each, each episode, yeah, episodically. It could bleed, yeah, right. yeah, it could not bleed over into, you know, which is, which is all streaming is now. So there, there are these, these great tectonic shifts, and we're having such a shift now, not just in art, obviously, but in culture. So uh, I don't know where, where any of this is going to go. So you don't feel that as a middle-aged white man, not to baby, I'm past middle age with that brush. Well, middle, I don't know. I don't know. Shit, I'm sixty. Aren't you in your sixties? I'm sixty. That's middle-aged. In March, yeah. If okay. I'm if well, I live to be hundred and thirty, I know, right? Um, but you don't feel that as a as an elder statesman who um, happens to be Caucasian, uh, you don't feel that you've you're being usurped by this these these generations coming up that want to silence you or oh, anything like that. No, I mean, I'm, I'm way past my shelf life. You know, my, my, my cell date passed a long time ago. No, I mean, again, I've never been part of, um, of, of the machinery, you know, the, the apparatus, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always struggled and been on the outside and anything that's come my way, was good fortune and luck. That is what I feel. You know, I struggled for years to try to create a cable show or, you know, I mean, I just remember and I just got lucky uh, when I did Wild Palms because we had the energy after Twin Peaks for the networks to um, to try something that was so unusual and which is what we did. And we were, because of that reason, we were unfairly Compared to to Twin Peaks, we, we couldn't have been any different what I had created. But I got lucky in that regard. You know, even early in my career, I got lucky because Wes Craven had read some um, some insane art script I'd written called They Sleep by Night. And for some reason, Wes liked that and said, why don't you write Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 with me? You know, so it's like... Everything I did, I was never able to write a bestseller or to write a successful television show or a movie that, you know, that I thought, oh, shit, maybe that's what I should do. Just one for the money. I'm not capable of doing it, apparently, as much as I wanted it. So luck plays a huge um, part in, in my career. And the idea that, that I'm an old white Jewish novelist, I mean... <laughs> You know, I didn't say anything about Jewish. Okay. Well, but I mean, it, it's it's sort of obviously I've I'm I'm been canceled, <laughs> canceled at birth. You know, um, that's you know. So I I don't feel um, usurped because Jesus, there's not much, there's not a banquet over here. You know. What are you hoping uh, will happen with? Marvel Universe, what would be the ideal outcome, say, five years from now? What would you like to see have happened from this? Well, um, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I, I don't have 
those kind of expectations anymore. I think I did when I was younger. I was more ambitious. I said from the beginning when I, the moment that I decided to do what I was doing, that what would be fun and interesting for me if in five years, 10 or 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 14 different versions of, of Marvel Universe exist in, in book form. You know, there's there's one on demand now. There's another one from Felix Farmer. There's another one I hear being planned that's going to be much more um, uh, of an art book. Uh, if some collective in Iowa or 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 Iceland or Tokyo decided to to do it, um, if someone um, you know, I, I, I don't know if the book is going to be reviewed in, in major venues at this point. Uh, that may happen. I've gotten some indications that that may happen. Um, I don't really, you know, if the book is adapted or parts of the book are adapted for some obscure uh, by, by students to as an art piece or it sneaks or creeps its way into something on Hulu, you know, all those things are possibilities, but they're just notions I have. I really, my work is done is the way I consider it. Um, and that's another thing that's liberating because, you know, when you write a book, you may have experienced this. When I was younger, it would be endless calls to the editor. Does the New York Times have it yet? Yes, they have it. And well, do we have any idea? We think on the 18th, it could be the 25th, and then suddenly you're blindsided, it's suddenly out, it's a horrific review, or you're blindsided <laughs> and it's a great review. Or it's a non-review, it's, it's like a description, that's yeah, the worst. A description, yeah, like in the New Yorker, you know. Or in my books, it's like, well, why hasn't the LA Times reviewed it? We don't know, and then suddenly they assign it to someone that loves um, keeping up with the Kardashians to review it. You know, it's all of that stuff went away. And uh, that was such a, a delight for me because it's all going to go away. Uh, you know, this, this idea of legacy, I don't have it anymore. Um, and who am I writing for? And, and these notions of what's, what, you know, what would I like? Well, I'd like to wind up, um, somehow um, that Meghan Markle suddenly weirdly loved the book and I could do, you know, something with her and Harry for Netflix. You know, all these fantasies that you have that I, I really put into my books as the fantasies of delusional people. Um, they've been taken off the table. Yeah, actually, I was going to, we need to wrap up, but I actually want to just backtrack for a second and ask you about all the people that appear uh, in Marvel Universe. I mean, this is a, this is a characteristic of all of your novels. There's like lots of, um, Mm, lots of celebrities and, you know, public figures being mentioned or often being characters. Um, Like, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, what would happen if, are they allowed to, if it's in the public domain, is someone allowed to just come along and change it? Like, what if someone said, well, I don't like, I don't like you talking about Greta Thunberg in this way, so I'm going to take her out, but Billie Eilish stays in. Like, how do you prevent that from happening? You can't, but it's funny that you say that because on the website, um, I'll just kind of um, paraphrase it. I do say something to the effect of, um, while it is the author's wish that that if this book is reprinted in, in totality or an excerpt, that 
one adheres to the text, uh, uh, the author realizes he has no control over that. But in any case, uh, its veracity or the, the truthfulness of what the author wanted the text to read can and always will live on his website, brucewagner.la. So that's the way I, I, that was the only thing I could do because you're, you're correct. It's like, but I, I, I can't see the point of anyone doing that, although anything's possible. But it would be like going online and rearranging the works of, of Nathaniel Hawthorne because, you know, which maybe people are doing with, you know, or with Scarlet Letter. I, I don't know, but I, I have no control. You're absolutely right. And that's part of what's fun about it. Uh, well, Bruce, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really love this book. I love your writing. You're just, I think you're incredibly talented and I, oh, well, I, was not, I, I, I really like, uh, yeah, I don't mean to fangirl all over you, but I just, I see you as, as a real artist, a, a serious uh, literary figure. So um, it's, you know, it was. You know where I did, we did meet, I think, now that I remember it? I think we met at an Academy Award party, and it was one that Larry Gagosian used to give. And I think we might have been sitting near each other or at the same table at Mr. Chow. Huh. Does that ring a bell? All right. Um, not offhand, but I like yeah. the idea of being associated with all of those things. So I'm yep. just going to say that's entirely possible. That was my interview with novelist and screenwriter Bruce Wagner. You can find his latest novel, The Marvel Universe, on his website at brucewagner.la. His other novels include Dead Stars, I'm Losing You, I'll Let You Go, and Still Holding. Those three make up his so-called cell phone trilogy. He's also the creator of the television series Wild Palms, which was adapted from a collaborative comic strip and graphic novel. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc., etc., all the usual spaces. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. If you'd like to support the show, please sign up on its Patreon page at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. Right now, if you go there, you can find an extended interview of last week's interview with podcast host Katie Herzog. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the next guests very soon on the website and on Twitter and other places. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.